Hi, this is Bethany Watson from an Acquired Taste podcast, and you are listening to The World is Wrong. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Jurassic Park. Three! (laughs) Welcome to The World is Wrong podcast, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. I am one of your hosts, and my name is Andras Jones. And I'm the other host, Brian Connolly. And we're not alone, Brian. We have a third host for this podcast. Welcome to the realm of the world is wrong, this shadowy dark island that we are on with mysterious, (laughs) dangerous creatures. Welcome to this lost world, if you will. Bethany Watson Hello. of An Acquired Taste Podcast. How's it going? Oh, well, it's it's great. Uh, I, Brian, I, I think I can speak for both of us. It's great to have uh, have someone keeping us company. We've, 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 <laughs> we've kind of been shut in together for so long. We may yeah. have new, uh, new, al- new uh, aspects of our relationship revealed. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to thank you sincerely for having me. Not only... I'm just I'm grateful to be thought of as a as a guest to have, but also I'm so grateful that it gave me an excuse to watch this incredible motion picture again, because it has been some years since I've seen it. But this stands, in my opinion, as one of the top two Jurassic Park films of all time, including the new ones. Jurassic Park three is a jewel among lumps of coal. And I am so happy to be discussing this important piece of work. A jewel amongst lumps of coal or a cell phone amongst lumps of dinosaur poop. <laughs> what a, yeah. Choose your metaphor. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm really looking forward to talking with, uh, with you about this. You, you, you picked this film and uh, we were talking and you suggested it. And then when I mentioned it to Brian, he got very excited. And so we're, we're excited to go on this adventure with you. Why don't we play a clip from the film now, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. So, Mr. Kirby, tell me, when you climbed K2, did you base camp at 25 or 30,000 feet? 30,000 feet. We're, we're pretty close to the top. You're about a thousand feet above it, actually. No, no, that's a common mistake. Well, Mr. Kirby, there's no such thing as Kirby Enterprises, is there? It's Kirby Paint and Tile Plus. The plus stands for bathroom fixtures. Um, we're in the Westgate Shopping Center, Enid, Oklahoma. It's so I don't Westgate suppose that check you wrote us is any good. All right, now, now, no, this is listen good. to me. I will pay you the money this that I owe you, good. no matter what. Here we are in the worst place in the world. We're not even being paid. All right, now wait, fellas, hold on. I'll make this up to you. If you ever do a, a, a bathroom or a kitchen... You're not really a mercenary, are you? I never said I was. That's true. What are you? Well, I'm like a booking agent. One of the guys guys got sick and couldn't come. Excuse me. Here. So you run a hardware store? Paint and tile, yeah. Huh. Never can tell about people, can you? Ain't that the truth? Quiet. Will you stop that? 
Dr. Grant says this is very dangerous territory. Look, maybe we should split up or something. You know, we could cover twice as much ground. Dr. Grant says that's a bad Dr. idea. Dr. Grant, Dr. Grant says that... Well, what's the good of hiring an expert if we're not going to use his advice? Yeah, except Dr. Grant isn't looking for Eric. He's looking for the coast. Okay, fine. Go ahead and scream. And then when that tricycloplots attacks you, don't come crying to me. Don't worry about that. What? N nothing. W what did just, you say? Never mind. What did you say? God, Paul just threw right, If we split up... I'm going with you guys. So the general plot of Jurassic Park 3 is that Alan Grant, Sam Neill, our uh, protagonist from the first film, he gets hoodwinked into coming back to this other island that, uh, that InGen had been working on the whole time. So Jurassic Park, the first one, takes place at Isla Nublar. Now we're on Isla Sorna. And... It is Taya Leone and it is William H. Macy. They are a divorced couple. And we find out in the beginning of the movie, their son has gone missing. He went parasailing over this dinosaur island with his stepdad. And the boat that was tailing, that was trailing them, uh, got attacked. And now their son is missing on this island. So they pretend to be something they're not. They uh, basically bribe Alan Grant to come back to the island with them as a tour guide. He agrees, they knock him out, he wakes up on the island, and now they have to fight for their lives to not only find their son, but everybody get off alive. And it's so good. Great. Well, uh, Bethany, you chose this film. So yeah. can you tell us, how is the world wrong about Jurassic Park 3? First of all... So much thought and love was put into this movie. Now, if you look at the Wikipedia page, sure, you're going to see that there were a bunch of writers. Maybe the script was never actually finished during shooting. Maybe the actors were super frustrated and covered in real bruises that had to be covered up with makeup only to apply fake bruises. However, the cast is insane. You have Sam Neill, who's a rock star. You have Laura Dern, also returning from the original. You have William H. Macy, who is William H. Macying all over the place. He is playing <laughs> the best version of himself. You have Taya Leone, who's doing incredible work of being strong but vulnerable. The I typically do not like child actors on screen. I find them distracting and I worry for them and it takes me out of the movie. <laughs> um, but the kid who plays the kid is so good. He's such a good actor. It's it's, And then there's dinosaurs everywhere. We get to see velociraptors super up close, closer than we ever got to see them before. They're hunting. They're smart. There's a new baddie. It's like the T-Rex, but worse. It this their, their CGI is better. The puppetry is better. It's Stan Winston. It's industrial light and magic. It, it's freaking pneumatic tubes being used to shake an airplane with practical effects. Like, there's so much going right with this movie that people don't appreciate. Okay. Thank okay. you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, well, Brian, Brian, I know you're a, you're a big fan of this movie as well. Uh, do you have yeah. anything to add as far as how the world is wrong about this film? Uh, just, I got a lot of flack for liking this movie when it came yeah. out. I saw it in the theater. I was very excited. Like I was a huge fan of the first two Jurassic Park movies. Like the first one came out when I was, 12 
and I'd already read the book three times by the time I'd seen it in the theater. And so oh, I was so very cool. obsessed with that movie. And I was the only one who liked The Lost World out of my friends. They all hated mm-hmm. it. And then none of them wanted to see the third one. But I was very excited to see the third one. So then I went and saw it in the theater and loved it and told everyone how great it was. And no one believed me and still no one has seen it of my friend group. <laughs> They've only cheated themselves all of these years, Brian. I know. It's sad. Andres, have you seen it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've, I, I saw it. I've seen it once before. And then I wa- I've watched it twice since we spoke. I watched it again last night. Um, and how much do you love it? <laughs> well, you see, to me, Jurassic Park <laughs> is, is a tri- like all the Jurassic Park movies to me are great after I've seen them once. But mm-hmm. I, I do not like being frightened. And they, <laughs> they all frighten me. They, I, all of the, like the, it's weird to me. Everyone thinks it's like so crazy that Spielberg, and I know that Spielberg didn't do this one, but that mm-hmm. Spielberg did in the same year he did Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. Mm-hmm. But to me, they're basically the same movie, you know, basic people being <laughs> hunted by monsters. Yeah. I and, mean, that's yeah. a great point. And I don't like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> I watched, you know, I, 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 I feel kind of the same way about Jurassic Park as I feel about Schindler's List in the mm. se- in the sense of like, it's great. And actually, it's not true. Schindler's List isn't better the second time you watch it. It's still horrible <laughs> uh, yeah. in yeah. terms of making you feel bad. Jurassic Parks are kind of they're they're not they're sweet once you know who's going to get eaten and who's not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But when you don't know, it's very very stressful for me. So okay. all of the Jurassic Park movies are a challenge for me. It's funny because we recently did an episode on uh on Okja. And yes. and Brian like this is the thing. So and Brian <laughs> won't watch it because he's afraid it's going to be uh too painful. <laughs> And yeah, I, I watch same. a movie like Jurassic Park. I'm like, why doesn't anyone say that about these movies? These movies <laughs> are truly traumatizing. A film like Okja, it maybe makes you think of our complicity in the in the tragedy in it. But in terms of just seeing things that are going to traumatize your nervous system, a film like Okja is like a Disney film compared to a Jura- any Jurassic Park movie. Uh, wow. So. So yeah, so I I really I really enjoyed it especially. I enjoyed this this process that we do on the show because I wouldn't have ever gone back to see Jurassic Park 3, I don't think, unless it was playing on a a TV in a hotel or something. But yeah, going back yeah. and watching them, watching forcing myself to go through the process of watching it the first time and making the screen really small when it got really scary. That's what I do. I just make the screen as small as I can and turn it down. So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. Oh, John Deal, see it. Oh, shit. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, but now but now I feel like I, I got a lot out of the film because I think there is a lot to explore that's really unique in the nooks and crannies of this film. And that's what I can't wait to hear from from the two of you. So... Uh, I'll be along. I'll be along for the ride. I'll have some points of view, but I, I really want to let the two of you really dig into this pile of guano. And in this sense, guano. I love in this movie that the, when the guano shows up, their first response is to rush towards it, and that's what Run I want to, I, to it. That's what I feel like in this film. I want us to rush towards these piles of guano, dig through that, 
find the treasure and then put it up to our <laughs> face and call Laura Dern and tell her how great this movie is. Yeah, find that eight pound satellite telephone, that bright orange piece of technology. It's so good. Okay, so what do we want to talk about first about this film? I mean, do we want to just do talk a little bit about the entity, which is Jurassic Park and all these movies? Bethany, what's sure. your relationship to Jurassic Park? So the first Jurassic Park came out when I was little, and I remember seeing ads for it. I remember the shot where the flash, where he aims the flashlight at the T-Rex's eye and the pupil dilates. Yeah. And I remember like that was so huge and scary and fascinating to me as a little kid. And I was having a sleepover the night that my dad went and saw it in the theater. And he came home and he was like, you can't see this for years. Like, this is too, <laughs> this is too scary for you right now. So when I finally got to see it, it was to me like a grown-up movie. This was a movie that my dad had watched and that had scared my dad. And I have such an affection for it because it was shot like the, like the first three, which is why I love Jurassic Park 3 as well. The first three all have the same feeling to them. They're late 90s, early 2000s. It's, it's the, the fashion is... Um, a little bit unfortunate, a lot of high-waisted <laughs> khakis, which are coming back. But it's this sense of excitement that I think was so new to me as a kid when it came to watching movies. Everything before that that I had seen had been um, like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, which clearly to me was actors on a sound stage with fake plants, um, <laughs> which is interesting because... I think it's Joe Johnston who directed this, also directed Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Am I am I right in that? I think that's yep. the case. Um, and so this was the first time I'd ever seen a movie where I could not tell the difference between what, what had been created and what was actually real. And so for that reason, I think these films, all three of them, live in such a cozy world for me. It It's like my childhood. It's... This excitement, the music is so incredible, and that refrain that comes through all three films is so evocative of like, this is something that if you experienced in real life, your chest would seize up. Like you wouldn't be able to catch your breath because of just the enormity of these animals. And then also for me, being a film person, um, I just get so turned on by practical effects versus CGI. Like two of the velociraptors are robots. One of them is CGI, but you can't tell which is which. You know, like the, we, we made the feet of, uh, of the Spinosaurus, but the rest of it is CGI. And like how seamlessly they're able to do all those things. I just, it, it's so exciting for me. I get so turned on by it. And... <laughs> And it has, and and then to have like incredible acting on top of that, like I know Sam Neill signed on to do this one immediately because he hadn't liked his performance in the first Jurassic Park, and so in Jurassic Park three, we see these little nuances he's added to the character, like when he realizes that they're not just on a bridge, they're actually in a bird cage for these pterodons. You see a little moment of a smile because he initially is just excited about it from a scientific perspective. And then he realizes, Oh, people's lives are at stake, but we get to see that kind of psychotic moment of like, he's more interested in the implications of this than he is in people are going to die. It's fascinating. Yeah. 
that's that's usually it's my job to pick out the intricacies of <laughs> performances here on this podcast but you nailed that's great oh it's, uh, he's so good in this he is he is it's funny i have a great my memory of my first memory of sam neill there was a uh, pbs miniseries called riley ace of spies that came Ooh. out when i was in high school and i remember when it came out there was a article in the new york times about we a, a great actor has arrived we must see you must see this film riley ace of spies and i remember seeing it and being like eh, he's okay but uh <laughs> i'm gonna pay attention to this sam neill guy and he is just that it's that was had to be like at least 15 years maybe 10 15 wow. years before jurassic park so this guy his slow burn of a He's sort of a superstar who is not, like who yes. has stayed below the radar. He's a really, <laughs> really interesting actor. So yeah, I, I love, I love him as the the center of this piece because yeah. he is not. It's again, it's sort of similar. Going back to the Jurassic Park, both him and Liam Neeson, yes, were sort of weird people to put at the center of these massive blockbusters. Sort of very they sort have... of soulful, intellectual guys. Yes. They have they have a solidness to them. They're like your dad's friend who, <laughs> you know, who's very like he doesn't say a lot to you because you're a kid mm-hmm. and he's not sure about kids. But you feel very safe with him because you, he just seems like he has it together. He, like they're they're both that type. And so you're always happy to see them because, you know, you're in good hands. It's 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 funny. I think of a guy like Sam Neill as someone it's it's odd like he has never had, has he ever had a career mess- misstep where he sort of got over his skis a little bit like, okay, well, I'm a big movie star now. I'm going to play. Oh, Duh. I've never really seen him do that. It's- I mean, I don't know enough. Brian, maybe you do. I don't know enough about his oeuvre to be able to say, like, maybe we don't know his missteps because we didn't pay attention to his missteps. I mean, I there was the third Omen movie, but that was like early on in his career where he, he plays like the grown up Damien. Okay. Does, I mean, that movie's just not good all around. It's not his fault. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. I mean, I even enjoyed that movie he made during COVID where he was in the bathtub. Do you remember that? Did you see that video? I didn't see that one. <laughs> I didn't see it. It's just uh, him and Hugo weaving in a bathtub having a conversation that they filmed uh, like over Zoom. I love was, I love was, both of those and men. It was brilliant. <laughs> and I mean, like, even he did Merlin in the 90s, like yeah. the made-for-TV oh, yeah. movie Merlin, and that was great. I mean, like, he's just, he's great in everything he does. I'm just thinking yeah. of, like, he may have, there may have been not great movies that he was in, but I, it seems like everyone who has that, oh, now I'm in a blockbuster movie, has the movie, or there's something in the movies that are after, like, one or two, where you're like, Oh wait, this guy's not really an action hero. Why is he playing the leading? Or, this guy's not really a romantic leading man. He why is he playing the Ryan Gosling role in this film? But Sam yeah, Neill never yeah. really had that. I think it's the Australians. They're just we did a whole month on Nicole Kidman. Just the I think the Australians are just smart. The British get credit for being the smartest actors, but I feel like yeah. the Australians might make the smartest movie stars. Yeah, or maybe they have the best teams around them. Yeah, to like really guide their careers the best. Find yourself an Australian manager is maybe is maybe the thing. <laughs> the most deadly animal on earth, the Australian manager. 
Well, and like Sam Neill is, has been really good at always doing small movies and big movies. Like he doesn't just do like, oh, I'm in Jurassic Park. I'm only going to be in crap. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. He will do weird little things made in New Zealand and, or Australia, you know? So like he has always been good at having that balance, which I think is hard for some actors. Once they get that paycheck, I think they just want to keep making yeah. bigger movies and then you just get bored, you know? with yeah. Will Smith or whoever, you know, like that keeps just wanting to make these giant bloated uh, movies. Yeah. It seems like he's doing the, like the, the one for them, one for me kind of thing. Yeah. Which is how you should do it. Yeah. It's so sad. I was watching a terrible, I'll, I'll not say what movie, Eric Bana movie. <laughs> and I was like, Eric Bana, like in chopper is brilliant. <laughs> and then he was so brilliant in that, that Hollywood is like, you are now part of us now. And he was yeah. only been in terrible movies that where they're trying to push him on us. Gerard Butler kind of had the same thing. Yeah. Yep. And it's How just sad because you. you're like, these are really good people come, but you can make a small movie again or go back to your country and make a little thing. You don't just have to do this garbage like yeah. over here. Yeah. It's too bad. Don't compare the great Eric Bana to Gerard Butler, please. <laughs> I, I I take your point that Eric Bana is, has been ill-used. Totally. A, and he's a, great. He is yeah, sad. His talents are great. Yeah. Favorite Hulk. He's, my he's favorite, your favorite Hulk? He's my favorite Hulk. I just be, you know I, what? I like all the Hulks. I'm sorry. I like them all. I can't weigh in. I, I just, I have not paid enough attention to any hulks to know if i have a favorite so i'll i'll defer to you on that <laughs> eric banna ed norton bill bixby and uh mark uh, what's his name mark ruffalo all great hulks okay there's no bad all hulks. great hulks yeah no no no. You, it is an embarrassment of riches when it comes to the hulks lou ferrigno amazing oh, yes yeah. yes i guess bill bixby and lou ferrigno make one hulk <laughs> it's like the it's like the old school uh, like horse costumes yes. one of them's the head yeah. and one of them's the behind i guess bill yeah. bixby's the behind <laughs> it turns out better for both i think yeah. in that situation yeah. when it comes to the hulks but yeah. yeah okay we got off we got off track so yes yeah, sam neil sam neil is fantastic uh brian mm -hmm. did you did you want to want to weigh in a little bit on your history with jurassic park well, I briefly touched on it, but I love these first three movies. I hate the Jurassic World movies. I do not like those movies at all. Um, and I feel it's there's something sad, too, about watching these original movies. It, it's kind of like seeing pictures of an old dead friend because <laughs> it's like these are the last movies that did animatronics and miniatures and CGI when necessary. Mm -hmm. Now everything is just all in on CGI and it just sucks. And it's just, it's so great. You're right. Just to see like a foot come down and you're like, Oh, they made this giant foot. That's so exciting. Yeah. And, and it and was yeah, dangerous. It, and it, it just gives you a sense of something actually being there. And it doesn't just feel like, this green screen world or just like everything is just animated and computer and it doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. And so it's just sad. These sort of like this last hurrah of Hollywood films in the late nineties, early aughts that still like paid people to build a thing. Yeah. And I think we're moving back in that direction in some cases. I think that's where smaller movies are really shining because at least in the horror genre, it's a we're going back to a lot of practical effects, a lot of puppetry, like the movie Satanic Panic. Um, I don't know when that, a couple years ago. I mean, all of those effects were practical, practical blood, practical monsters coming through the walls. 
And there's something just, even if it's not 100% perfect, it's so visceral. And, and to be able to see the actors really interact with something, I think that we are starting to realize CGI doesn't necessarily age well when we see it you know, seven or eight years later on our TVs versus even watching <laughs> Jurassic Park 3 this morning at 8 a.m., which is when I watched it, which is a very <laughs> weird time to watch it. Um, it looked pretty good. It it translated pretty well onto my TV set because so much of it, I think, was practically done. Yeah. And it just gives it that amusement park feel, like when yeah. you're on a ride and like when you go on like Pirates of the Caribbean, they don't look real. It doesn't, right. They don't look like real people. Or like the haunted mansion, but it's still fun because you know someone built this thing. There's like an artistry to it. Yeah. I mean, not that there's not artistry to CGI too, but like there's something fun about a tangible thing coming out and scaring you or moving around. And it doesn't have to look real. I don't want it to look. I'm not taken out of it because it doesn't look like a real. I don't know what a real dinosaur looks like. I wasn't <laughs> around then, but I'll take the robot ones they build and I'll yeah. be very happy. I mean the the Spinosaurus is the new bad guy in this in this movie <laughs> that animatronic i i saw on wikipedia weighed 13 tons and at one point there's this fight between the spinosaurus and the t-rex and the the spinosaurus robot uh actually ripped the head off the t-rex like by accident <laughs> like these were these were real monsters that i can understand it probably upped the insurance but but it's so cool it's so exciting it's like that little kid part of you that's playing with legos and going like rah, 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 rah. it's like it's grown-ups doing that and and <laughs> it's so exciting and so fun to watch so let's look at this production team a little bit so we have Joe Johnston, who we've already discussed, and uh, several writers, one of one of whose name uh, really jumps out, Alexander Payne was one of the was one of the writers on this film. <laughs> Sideways. Yeah. yeah, he made this him and Jim Taylor, who also wrote this. This was between election and about Schmidt was Jurassic Park 3. And Let's it was make some weird... money, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, what a weird person to grab to be like, you know who should make a Jurassic Park movie? <laughs> the guy who deals with like painful, awkward humanity and, and low-budget comedies. Let's... But you can feel it. And I mean, he and he worked with Laura Dern before on Citizen mm -hmm. Ruth. So there's a history there. Yep. <laughs> Maybe she's the one who brought him in. Maybe he was like, hey, I know the right person to punch up this, I guess that they had a different script like six weeks before production about the big dinosaur coming to the mainland and it was kind of like a mystery. Yeah. And six weeks before they shot, Spielberg threw it away and said, we need something different. Yeah. And so then they just had to bring, I guess you just call it, that's when you call up Alexander Payne and you Jim say, Taylor hey. yeah. and say, hey, I know you don't do anything like this at all, but will you write a rewrite a dinosaur thing? And it's like, it kind of works. And this was that weird time when they were doing that. Like they also did, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry, I think like a year <laughs> or two after this. So there was a weird time where Alexander Payne was the go-to, like make our big Hollywood movie and then go back and make Nebraska. Yeah. <laughs> so. But yeah, I mean, I think what, what they added was, I'm guessing a lot of the business within the family. Yeah. Um, within the I was the Kirby family, so William H Macy and uh, Taya Leone and their kid. Like, so I would say the star performance in this is William H Macy. He he gets some of the best lines because he's yeah. 
the dad. He's the dad who's never had to really um, stand up and like be a, a superstar before. He's fumbling. At one point, they walk into the decrepit, you know, InGen headquarters and they're kind of looking at the phones to see if the phones work. They're taking shelter and they walk past a bank of um, vending machines. And <laughs> William H. Macy just starts digging in his pocket and he's like, I got like a buck 20. Does anyone have a change? Does anyone have a change? I have like a buck 20. And he's like counting and then one of them just like kicks in the glass and they take candy. <laughs> it's like these funny little moments that I, that I am guessing were were the punch ups um that made it, it has in to be were so funny and and added so much actually humanity to it because it wasn't all just like furrowed brows and being like badass and sexy it was like this real family who was trying to fumble their way through finding their son I, yeah i agree that's got to be where the alexander Payne comes in because like the way he writes pathetic weak yeah. white men yeah. is so much how <laughs> william h macy it's like it feels like this could be a joke with Paul Giamatti in Sideways. <laughs> yeah. But instead it's in Jurassic Park 3. I wrote uh, this line down. Um, so they they convince um, Alan Grant that they're going to fund all of his future digs because he because William H. Macy owns Kirby Enterprises. And he's like, oh, I could write any number on this check. And he's like, okay, fine, I'll come with you. They land, they crash land, all's gone to hell. And 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 um, Alan Grant says, there's no such thing as Kirby Enterprises is there. And William H. Macy says, it's Kirby's Paint and Tile Plus. The plus stands for bathroom <laughs> fixtures. We're in the Lakewood Shopping Center in Eden, Oklahoma. And it's like so <laughs> funny and realistic. And that's what he, that that's why the movie's so good. The dinosaurs are great, but it's like this this dialogue is so funny. Yeah. There's a great I don't know the exact line, but there's a great little exchange towards the end of that, I think, with him and Michael Jeter, where they're both <laughs> We, they, they admit that they've both been lying and it's like, what yeah. crazy world, huh? You know, yeah. That's like something right out of David Mamet. I felt like like maybe they had David Mamet write one line on this film or maybe yeah, William H. Yeah, Macy yeah. just knows Mamet-ese so well that it's just, yep. it just comes out of his well, pores. The script was a mess. I read that, and again, this is all from Wikipedia, so who knows, but like I read that they never actually had a finished script. They eventually at the end of shooting all of the pages they had could form a script but they never had a final document they were getting pages new pages all the time and i read that william h macy wrote one of the scenes so it's entirely possible that that's the scene he wrote it's funny well i i I don't want to get into me too much but i my one the big one big film that i was involved with nightmare on elm street 4 we were in the same situation we shot it during a writer's strike And so we did not have a finished script, which is an actor who has pretensions as a writer is great. Plus, I had a director who didn't (laughs) speak English and Rennie Harlan. So we there's something that is incredibly freeing as an actor about being about being in that situation. I mean, it's probably also Mm -hmm. terrifying uh, if you are someone who has a career that could be hurt by the film. But as someone if you're if it's your first film for me, that was an incredibly free experience. So I can imagine that being a situation where people are just throwing in wild lines and saying, hey, can I do my take on this? This is what I think we should do. Yeah. It sounds like it was uh, incredibly stressful slash amazing. I think it depends on what kind of actor you are. Like if you're an actor who needs to do a lot of prep and you need to find your beats of the scene and you need to find your emotional why and you want to know your actor's secret for every single scene, it's probably going to be very stressful. but, you know, I think it, it also sounds a lot like the way soap operas work or worked 
before mm-hmm. they were you know taken off the air it's like you get you get your dialogue that day and you have to live in that moment i think it's it's kind of awesome uh the other performance that i feel like we should really we should talk about is Taya leone's because yeah. her character is incredibly annoying <laughs> all that uh just chat like when they're running around shouting i, I guess is first watch first watch me i'm just i hate them like just come and eat her already just eat her <laughs> stop shut her up you know yeah. she, can she stop screaming and yelling through that bullhorn second time i'm watching it's like oh man you are giving a hell of a performance to leone because mm-hmm. yeah i Oh, oh man! There's so many beats where she takes where she goes too far. I really like her. She's an actress who I like so much. And watching her just sort of be the scream, the screamer, the over screamer in this film really bugged me. But then it's also a part of it, like, well, that's also good. It's good acting, but at the same, maybe is it not great directing? I don't know. I'd love to hear you guys take on on Taya Leone's performance. I I thought she showed really how good she is because that character is tough at the beginning when she is on the beach screaming through a bullhorn for her son and you're going like shut up you're attracting all of the dinosaurs (laughs) but from her perspective I mean I'm trying to I don't have a child I'm trying to imagine the love you have for your child and if you do not know where your kid is you're going to be losing your mind and a mother who has not seen her kid for eight weeks, knowing that your kid might not even be alive. I think I picture my mom would be screaming too. And yet at the end of the movie, we love her. And I think that's a testament to Taya Leone as an actress, to be able to swing us over to her side and show us that like she's terrified and she doesn't know this world. She doesn't know the rules. She doesn't know she's supposed to be quiet all the time. She just knows her kid is out there somewhere and I think anyone who's ever loved anyone desperately can't help but identify with that on a certain level. I don't know. I was having feelings about like the end of the last episode of MASH. Did, did you? <laughs> oh, oh. When, when, he, when she kills the, the chicken in the bus, but it's not really chicken, it's a baby. I'm like, do that oh. to Taya Leone now. <laughs> Where's oh. Alan Alda when we need him to? <laughs> <laughs> he just walks out of the brush wearing a pith helmet with yeah. like a machete. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brian, Taylor Leone, thoughts? Uh, I like her. I like her in this. I think I like her in a lot of things. I think she has that, the, the, or Hollywood has the problem if they keep casting her as the person we're supposed to be kind of annoyed by. Like that's mm-hmm. her role in Spanglish as well. Like you sh- mm. you're supposed to be, you hate her so much, you want. Adam Sandler to cheat on her with his maid, you know, which is not an <laughs> admirable not role. Yeah, and not fair. And I feel like they kept trying, they like, they also kept trying to make her the next big thing on TV. I remember there being several com- comedy shows where they're te- trying to push Taya Leone as like the next comedian. And it just never quite connected for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And I honestly can't even remember the last thing I've seen her in. Like, I mean, she's... What has she been up to? I don't know. She's in um, Madam Secretary. Okay. Um, and I think that, that that is a great role. I think that type for her is really good. I think that getting a little bit older and more mature has worked for her quite well. Um, because she has... She's able to tap into a bit more strength, I think. 
Um, she has the same type to me now as Robin Wright. Like it's a very powerful, reserved character type that serves her better hmm. um, than like the screaming. We don't want to <laughs> like her. We're not going to like her. I, I like what she's turned into a lot. Yeah, uh, the other actors that come up when you're talking about this type, it makes me think of Annette Benning as another. Yes. And she also, when she when she first appeared on, I think the first time I really noticed her was in Flirting with Disaster. And Which I have not seen. I need to watch that. Oh, I'm putting it on my list. Great film. Great, great film. movie. <laughs> and my first thoughts was like, oh, the, I got the sort of Jamie Lee Curtis feeling from her. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm. I think I'm still not on board with her in this, but I am a big <laughs> Taya Leone fan. I also have all. I've I've sort of thought for a while. I wonder because Madam Secretary has continued, but it seemed so clearly sort of timed to jibe with the with the Hillary Clinton moment, and so I've sure. always wondered if Hillary Clinton's loss hurt Taya Leone, or if the sort of wish fulfillment factor of it helped. Madam Secretary. Would Madam of Secretary have been able to succeed through four years of a Hillary Clinton presidency? Or does it succeed because people want that so badly that sure. people are tuning into Madam Secretary? <laughs> to like scratch that itch or yeah. to play what if. Any, any take on Yeah, that's on an this? interesting point. I, I mean, I bet, I, it's I, yeah. Brian, please. No, I bet that's, I bet you're totally on that, Andras. I, get, I think it's why the West Wing did so well. I think like if that had come out during Obama, I think people wouldn't have been as gung-ho about seeing some liberal president do good every day. <laughs> but since it came out in the early aughts or whatever, I think that uh, that's why it was a hit. I think people like that fantasy, even if it doesn't seem like a science fiction fantasy. But I think mm -hmm. like we all wanted a, a female president and then it didn't happen. Mm -hmm. uh, so a show is giving us, it's filling in that void. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't thought of that. It's a good point, though. I mean, I... I I know that there are, the state of affairs affect what books I read and what TV shows I watch just to find like someone I feel like I can trust in an absence <laughs> of that in real in the in the real world. So that's interesting. That's an interesting point. And she's a great one. I mean, again, like and also bringing up Jamie Lee Curtis, like that type. I just love how these women have found this this part of their lives that they get to be so badass and so strong. And Laura Dern, again, like just I'm obsessed with these. My dream is to have a film that involves a coven of women, um, like a like a witch movie that involves like a coven of witches. And it's just like this amazing list of actresses. And they're all at Allison Janney's also on that list. Just like all of these women <laughs> that are so like, badass. Like witches 11. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And there's a heist. <laughs> we steal the baby. Uh, no. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. And, and Laura Dern, now you, you say that she's back, but she's not. I mean, it feels like Laura Dern said, I'll give you a day of shooting. Maybe. Which is what it was. Yeah. She shot for one day. Yeah. yeah. That's what it looks like. And you should please shoot it at my house. <laughs> I want it all but in my kitchen. <laughs> But she saves the day. I mean, it's good to see her. It would well, be really disappointing if if she wasn't at least in a little bit of it, you know? Uh, well, I, it's assumed that she saves the day. 
You know, basically she gets a phone call and then the next thing we see a bunch of army guys. (laughs) Like, we don't know. Maybe that call was, you know, was bugged. But maybe her phone is bugged by the CIA. She got caught up in watching Barney cartoons with her kid. Barney shows with her kid. That kid was amazing. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, it was nice to see her. Uh, but, uh, she, I, I, it was sort of like, whoa, what, wait, do you want to be I, in this I, movie, Laura? No, no, not really. I do. I do remember being super disappointed the first time I watched it. A, that she and Grant were not still together and B, yeah. um, that she was only in this little bit. I'm like, bring her to the Island. I need to see her again in a high rise, flat front khaki short with her sunglasses over her frizzy hair, looking astonished at the Brachiosaurus. Like I need her limping and sweating and being amazing in the jungle, <laughs> but I'm happy to, I'll, I'll take Dern any way I can get Dern. Even if it's <laughs> one day of shooting in the suburbs, she saves the freaking day. Andres, if you're going to call anyone on a satellite phone, you would better be calling Laura Dern. She has your back forever. Okay. Okay. What was she doing? <laughs> What was she doing? Was this was what was she doing that year instead of this? Do we know what oh, year was this? That's a good question. That's a great question. This was what this was two thousand and one, right? I think it came out in 01. They I think they were shooting it in ninety nine or two thousand. Oh, this is when she was doing. She was busy. She did Daddy and Them, Within These Walls, Nova Kane, Focus, I Am Sam. All in two thousand and one. <laughs> she was so busy, Andres. Yeah. yeah. Give her, cut her some slack. Hey, I, I'm cutting, I'm cutting her all kinds of slack. I'm just saying. Why do you hate Laura Dern, Andres? Why don't you love her? <laughs> now, now hold on a second. I miss her. Missing is a sign of love. <laughs> I'm just sad that they haven't really brought her back to be like the main person back for a Jurassic Park movie, but maybe she doesn't want to. Maybe they did offer it. Cause like we've had Jeff Goldblum come back more yep. than once now. Yep. Sam Neill. But like she was to me the more the most exciting character in Jurassic Park. Like when yeah. I watched it as a kid, I was really excited about her. And she's the first one to go through the the dinosaur poop. She is. You know? She, she put in the hard work. In. Yeah, <laughs> she walked so others can run to the dinosaur poop. Yeah, I yeah, wa- she's great. I wonder. I wonder. Well, I wonder. Uh, yeah. For me personally, seeing John Deal, one of my favorite character actors, show up and be dispatched very quickly. Was very yeah, right away. <laughs> uh, he um he was he was used as a trap, right? With the raptors, was that how he? No, died? no, no. He was the one who came out onto the uh, onto the uh, tarmac, waving his arms. Oh, yeah, he then... was the first out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was tough to see. <laughs> the casting that really blew my mind was the guy who played Billy Alessandro Nivola. Yes, I'm watching the movie and I'm like. Whatever happened to this boring white dude? He's the star of that new Sopranos movie. He's like the main guy in that movie. So he actually had a career. Yeah. But in this movie, he's so forgettable. He's just like some guy. And I was shocked. He um, he apparently did not connect to his character very much in this. So I, I think that translates. I, I don't think he has. There's not a lot for him to do. You know, but a lot of the time he is just because he plays Alan Grant's like lackey, like student or whatever you will. Um, and, you know, he creates a, a three dimensionally printed rhino voice box, which is pretty cool. Rhino? But, uh, not rhino. Um, um, raptor. 
Um, but really all he's given to do, yeah, is like is run around and kind of look adoringly at Alan Grant and then get carried away by a pterodon and Hold on. Hold on. You two are so unfair to this character. No, he doesn't get to do a lot. What else he, does he get to do? He, he steals, gets to flirt with the paleontologist. He steals the egg. He steals the eggs. He's the he has he's the one sort of who has the who has any kind of change. And he has, I think, the most heroic moment when he jumps off the cliff with the parach- the parachute or para whatever it is yeah. Yeah. to save the kid. I think that's a great moment. Actually, it's, that's true. it's so funny. Right after this movie, I watched The Many Saints of New York. Yeah. Or New Jersey or whatever. Newark. Yeah. Newark. And he's great in it. He's the star. He's a great actor. He's he is and it was funny because each both characters are these sort of morally compromised guys. So and then I it it just made me think, oh well this is a guy and you see these these actors who they keep getting opportunities. They must there must be something great about them because someone keeps putting them in movies mm-hmm. and then eventually there's something that hits. And I feel like this yeah. He is he's really, really, really great in Many Saints of Newark. By the way, Many Saints of Newark is awesome. Is I, it good? I have I have I haven't it's, even dipped my toe in it, it yet. It is it's genuinely a really, really excellent film. Primarily if you've seen Sopranos, because watching these people play the younger versions of these characters we know so well is fantastic. But yeah, I I, I really like it. I I on second watch, again, I liked his character more. And then after watching Many Saints of Newark, I'm fully bought into this guy. He's 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 something. He's great in Face Off. He plays Nicolas Cage's brother. Remember him <gasps> That's in Face right. Off? That's right. I forgot about I think he has glasses that. in it. He Maybe does. Maybe he's into hacking or something. I don't remember. <laughs> I seem to call him in front of a computer or something. Uh, That's right. He's he's married to Emily Mortimer. In real so, life? Yeah. Not too wow. shabby. Not too shabby. For either of my guests. <laughs> I think they're still together. I hope they're still together. <laughs> um, are you were you guys big dinosaur fans when you were kids? Because I think that's sort of like why I love these movies so much. I was just like so into dinosaurs, and uh, I thought I saw a pterodactyl when I was a kid. Like <sighs> my memory is still that I saw one. Like I swear to God that when I was five, I looked out the back door, and in the backyard was a giant pterodactyl. I went to grab my mom. And then it was gone. Was it was it like walking in your yard or was it flying? It was walking okay. in my yard. <laughs> I have a th- I have a theory about this, and we're gonna we're about to take the podcast in kind of a woo woo direction, and we and, and you guys can like veer it back on the straight and narrow if you want. Um, my boyfriend Dennis also says, and I believe him that he saw something about that age. I think he was maybe eight when he looked up in the sky and saw something that he can't explain, and. I think that the human brain, if it sees something it's not supposed to see, that it can't categorize because our brains want to make a connection and see a pattern, it it replaces it with something else. So your brain, you loving dinosaurs, Brian, your brain was like, what is what is this? And so you were like, um, pterodon, the pterodactyl. It, that's what it is. And that's what you saw. And that's how your brain interpreted it. I don't know what you saw. Maybe it was aliens. But you saw something that your brain couldn't categorize, and so your brain made you see something else. It was wearing a postal outfit and it was delivering <laughs> the mail. <laughs> <laughs> I 
No, but it was <laughs> amazing. <laughs> but it, that that's funny because it's the same year that I thought I saw an a, an alien in my bedroom, and then where I, were it, you living? Tacoma, Washington, clearly oh. the most paranormal place on earth. Man, that Pacific but in Northwest. the same house, in the same house, probably the same year. This was on, I believe, Villard Street. I think it was what it was called. But uh, I saw, an, I heard a noise in my closet. I went down the bunk bed. Open the closet. A little alien was standing there, like the kind that looks like the end of Close Encounters. Absolutely. I freaked out, ran into my parents' room. I screamed and was crying. It then walked into my parents' room, and my mom looked at it and said, you can't be here. You're not supposed to be here. You need to leave now. And then I just was under the covers, terrified, and then my whole life, I'm like, that was that night where my mom told that alien to go away. <laughs> and... Does your mom remember this? Nobody, no. No. <laughs> But, you know, she might have had that men in black picture thing and I didn't, you know, the flash. Uh, that but... I, I choose to believe that. That's amazing. I'm so jealous. That's wild. Yeah. 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 I don't I know. I'm, I'm speechless. I don't know what to make of it, Brian. I only see things that exist in worlds that are produced by Steven Spielberg. That's like when I was a right. child. That's like I was terrified of E.T. as a kid, like. Anything that guy made either like made my imagination think it was real. Like I thought there were raptors in my backyard after I watched Jurassic Park and I was too old to think that, but I was just sort of like freaked out just thinking about like, cause we, I lived in the woods. Oof. Uh, so it was just kind of scary. Just like, just the noises the dinosaurs make in these movies, like the sound yeah. design is so great and it's it just so feels good. so like present and animal and just like, it's just kind of terrifying. Yeah, they do such a good job making it sound r incredibly organic and and unnerving and like I know that um I know they use just like other animals and they layered them all together or whatever. But 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 there is something so creative and unnerving about hearing this combination of sounds you've never heard before. I think the first Jurassic Park, I think they used like a dolphin squ squeal scream <laughs> in amongst other animal sounds for the T-Rex scream. So it's like these sounds we're familiar with, but but we can't quite place, which again, is just brilliant because we, it hits a part of us that we recognize it, but we don't. And so scary. Yeah. Were you, the, the opening of the movie, who, it was so, I'm still sort of in a sort of a customer complaint kind of way, frustrated <laughs> with it. I'm like, what's going on? Wait, who lets the let's people go parasailing next to this dinosaur island. That's just, that's a bad, that's not a business model that should be allowed. What? Like they have sign, they have like the, this parasail with the words dinosaurs on it. Like dinosaur, you can soar di oh, over dinosaur, the island. Yeah. Like, yeah. Who lets this person do this? Who lets the guy who's running the boat tours and who signs up? Everything about that is so annoying. There's so many things in this movie <laughs> that are annoying, like, and I know it's actually brilliant screenwriting to put all these annoying things in, but <laughs> there's, it's so frustrating. I guess I relate to the Sam Neill character so much of like, yeah, don't Why go near this island. This don't be on this plane. Don't land this <laughs> plane. Don't shout but through that bullhorn. And then, <laughs> wait, and, and. And what I don't like about this is that the people who are the most responsible for it, they suffer no consequences. This family yeah. should be eaten right away. They're only going to make more trouble. In fact, the way Taylor Leone ends it as like, I'd like to see that one that come to Ohio. It's like, <laughs> what are you talking about? 
You've done everything to sabotage this mission, and now well, you're acting you're, okay. like you're the tough dinosaur fighter. <laughs> I'm gonna defend the I'm gonna defend the Kirby's in here, so, and I think they specifically chose that it was her boyfriend who brought the son dinosauring. Yeah, and the, one of the mo- he of always them. plays unsympathetic characters. That guy, put, <laughs> look at him in a he will always play the guy who you're like you're glad the woman left to be with the other guy. Yeah. He, his face looks like he makes bad choices. And I'm sorry, <laughs> but that's his character. He see, I, first of all, I watch movies and turn off any critical thinking. Like, I am willing to <laughs> accept anything you tell me as fact. I'll make the connections myself if necessary. So I had zero issues with Dinosaur. Because it, to me, it's like, of course, there's always going to be shady business people who are going to try to turn a profit from this mass tragedy. Of course, we know that there's this awful island that you're not allowed to come near. We're going to find a couple guys who are going to like rent a boat and, you know, like pay, have people pay them under the table and take them soaring. By the time the government catches them, they're done. They're gone. They've gone back home. I questioned that not at all. Well, I mean, you got to figure they got to Like how many times have they done this? They got to You're going to get eaten the first or second time you do it. It seems like. I mean, it depends. The, 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 the pterodons, the pterodactyls were in a in a bird cage. Oh, yeah really up until this point. So they weren't going to be coming out. And, you know, I don't know what other swimming dinosaurs they had. Someone got to them. We never find that out, but someone got to that boat. Uh, It's okay. I I get it. But it's just, there, there is, there was a point in the movie where I was like, wait, nobody else in this, nobody else is getting eaten. Like we, we eat the first three or four, the first three or four army guys. And then everyone lives. Yeah. Anyway, I don't, I don't want, I'm not, I'm, I don't want to, make this all about that but there was there was something there that really i don't know frustrated me well you're not alone a lot of people dislike this movie so i I think i I didn't dislike the movie (laughs) i I, that that i don't want to that is not the case i i really especially once the trauma of it was over and i got to just Mm, enjoy it there was all there were all these things like i loved the whole captain hook uh factor with the phone in the in the belly of the the dinosaur. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I thought that was, that really got me in a really cool way or cool yeah. for me. There was, there was a lot of really great stuff that I enjoyed in this movie. And even this, an, if yeah. you're going to be annoying, if you're going to annoy me, annoy me with uh, William H. Macy and Taya Leone, two actors who I love. If they had had genuinely annoying actors in those roles, yeah. then it would have been bad. Right. No, there, and it is just I, the the caliber of talent that is in this movie helps it float. I really do think that every key role that is necessary for this movie to survive is is filled with an incredible actor, and so I think that's why I get so upset when people say they don't like it. I'm like, okay, maybe the story is a little bit cobbled together. Maybe it sort of feels like it kind of just abruptly ends, and the people who you want to survive survive and everything is great but the acting is so good the characters are so real the dialogue is really funny at times the kid is good like i do not i think i think that children actors i think it's a bad idea i have said on my own podcast before that 
at when we get to the level of technology where we can do this, I think all children in films should be mocap. I think Andy Circus <laughs> should open the Andy Circus School of Children Acting, and it's just mocap actors learning how to be kids. And then we just then you can make the kid look like the two parent actors as much as you need to, and now you have a mocap kid. But in the meantime, this this actor who played Eric was phenomenal. I loved his scenes. I loved watching him. He was great. That's Trevor Morgan. Yes, Trevor Morgan. Thank you. Uh, let's see how how's how's his career fared. <laughs> he's, he's doing stuff. He's still working. He's you know yeah. He's a made man. Yep. <laughs> so uh, any other any other standout scenes or performances from this film that you feel like we didn't we didn't touch upon? Literally going through the notes I took. Um, Brian, do you have anything? Uh, I re- just to go back to Sam Neill for a second. I really love all the scenes of him talking to himself about the dinosaurs. It felt very much like Will Graham and Manhunter, you know, of just him, just like he's like in the mind of the of the Velociraptors. All like, okay, you're doing that, and he's just like kind of thinking through their thought process to himself out loud. Yeah, and that feels so. Just like uh, William Peterson and Manhunter <laughs> to me when he's just like talking to the TV or whatever, pretending to be uh, Tom Noonan. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, it's like that side of him that that is never going to not be a scientist. It's the side of him that makes it so hard for him to connect to Laura Dern's kid because he's not good with kids because he's too analytical. Like they there are parts of this movie that do a great job of setting things up for us. We see that he's not great at connecting to people. And then we see him being so delighted in the midst of of being, you know, in a in a potentially deadly situation. He's so delighted with, oh, the theory, and it's actually this. And then he's talking to himself. I, that's I love those moments. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Cool. Okay. Well, I know Brian, you wanted to talk about the the sort of the Spielberg phenomenon beyond Spielberg <clears throat> the directors who live in the shadows of Spielberg the what, literally what do, you, what do you what do you call these <laughs> they folks? literally are in his shadows I don't think I don't know if you see this so much anymore but like Joe Johnston is so much like it's hard because like all these Spielberg clones also kind of work for him like they really are like his employees like he is the produ- like it seems unfair like unfair to call like Joe Dante a Spielberg clone because so many of his movies were produced by Steven Spielberg and, and uh, same with Robert Zemeckis, I feel, but like when you get into like your Joe Johnston's or um, uh, like a JJ Abrams or a Frank Marshall, like I feel these guys only exist to get whatever notes emailed to them <laughs> <Steven> Spielberg <laughs> Uh, or what notes in their mind they think they're getting from Steven Spielberg. They make just an exact replica. Mm-hmm. And they would be really, like, if they if movies didn't exist, they'd be really good at, like, designing, like, an amusement park funhouse or, or you know, like a Can you water rapid ride or something. Like, it just, because these movies, especially when you get further away from the actual Steven Spielberg, they become less... Like, there's less of an auteur thing going on there. Like, they don't really have a stamp. Like, what is the Joe Johnston stamp other than it kind of feels sort of like a Diet 
Spielberg, or I can't believe it's not Spielberg. And it's interesting because Steven Spielberg told Johnston to put his own spin on it. So I think that that uh, speaking of (laughs) and like speaking of you know unwinnable positions to be in, you know, with Taya Leone, everyone wanted Steven Spielberg's third Jurassic Park movie. Yeah. And there's no way to not be Steven Spielberg and to step into those director's shoes and to have people be happy. Like, there's just no way because everyone <laughs> wanted what you're not. And that sucks. <laughs> but you're, you know, it, it's it's it, an unwinnable situation. Because it's like, it's not like that every Spielberg movie has a great script. He's made some, like, The Lost World is silly, is just as silly as this. Yeah. But because he's such a craftsman, like there's all these great moments like in the lost world where she's on the glass and the glass is cracking and there's like this true tension, the cinematic tension. Yeah. And this movie really does feel like when you go to like universal studios and you're watching a show of like, we're going to do Jurassic park <laughs> and you're just sitting there watching. And I love that kind of stuff. I of love course. seeing like, Oh, they're doing their like play, like the Rushmore version of, <laughs> of Jurassic park. In a way. And there is and a moment and, like and, that too, where they're in the, um, they're in the engine location and they're seeing all the fetal dinosaurs and Taylor, is going from tube of dinosaur to tube of dinosaur. And then the next one she goes to on the other side, it looks like there's a fully grown raptor head <laughs> floating in the water. She looks at it and she turns her head and then the raptor moves its eye and she realizes the raptor is behind the thing and not in it. Like that feels like a downgraded Spielberg moment, like to your point. <laughs> and supposedly even this script is all the set pieces, like them on the rapids and them in the plane were all scenes they cut out of Jurassic Park and the Lost World. So they're yeah. even literally working with Spielberg's table scraps. Oh. Like, like, it really is like, I had these ideas and I, you got to do it. And I, I just feel like, are there other directors that have such a strong stamp that the director can't escape it? Like, when you see movies that Scorsese produces, like Uncut Gems, you know it means it's going to be kind of edgy. Maybe it's in New York, but it does like there's nothing in Uncut Gems that to me feels like a Scorsese movie. It feels very much a Softy Brothers movie, and I think maybe like Michael Bay. Like when you watch like the Michael Bay produced horror films, they kind of have that stench of Michael Bay. <laughs> on they got it in some. A way. They have Bayhem in them. Lots of yeah, Bayhem. A lot of Bayhem. <laughs> like his version of uh, or the version that he produced of like. Texas Chainsaw Massacre Friday the Thirteenth mm-hmm. feels more Michael Bay than it does the the series of those movies. So, but like, there's something about when you work for Spielberg, yeah. where you're like, "Yes, Mr. Spielberg, I will just give you exactly exactly what you want." It's like you get those kind of assistant managers, not the kind that dream and come up with their own thing that they come to the boss and say, "Here's a new spin that I thought we can do to sell this thing." I wonder, yeah, I mean, I don't know enough about all of the directors who have worked with and under him. Andres, maybe you're better educated about this than I am. But but I would imagine when someone is such an icon, like Spielberg's name has just become synonymous with good director. Like he's become the director version of Einstein, where you just say the name and you know it means genius. It's to be in that orbit, it must be incredibly difficult to try and also have your own literal spin when you are in the presence of that level and and strong um, impression of talent. Does that make sense? I, I, I think it's, yes, it's a yes and to that in the sense that 
sort of like Brian was saying, like I think like someone like Scorsese, he has that thing of like I'm I'm a filmmaker's filmmaker, and if you work for me, you're about making a great work of art. Whereas Steven Spielberg is like, I am the great popular entertainer filmmaker. So when you work for me, your film has got to be a blockbuster. It's got to get, this is for, and I think there's something when you're Steven Spielberg and you have the genius that he has, you can do this very popular thing and do your own auteur thing within it. And that's what makes it a Spielberg film. Whereas someone else can come in and do like, oh, I'm going to do all those Spielberg tricks and make this popular movie because we want to make a popular movie. We don't want to make a great movie. No one's expecting Jurassic Park 3 to be a great movie. No one's going to get any Oscar nominations for this. Critics are not going to love this. But this is an entertainment piece. And I feel like the kind of people who want to make, sorry, Brian, make popular movies... (laughs) Uh, that those kind of people that 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 I it it doesn't lend itself to the deep thinking or the personal expression. I think it's easier to be if you're going to be a Spielberg clone to be a clone as opposed to if you're being produced by Scorsese. The mandate is to do something that is edgy and pushes buttons and is going to be in the is going to be in these award conversations. Because that's it's interesting because that's more part of Scorsese's brand. Yeah. Right? Like, that's more part of that culture than it is. It's also interesting because Steven Spielberg has had such a long career that you're getting the people who, not just filmmakers like his contemporaries and maybe a few years younger who, you know, work with him and then for him, you're also getting the generation below who grew up with his movies, idolized him, and are now making films reminiscent of his that are incredibly... Um, sentimental. There's a lot of like that 80s love going around right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so you get that added layer of nostalgia paired with also working with Steven Spielberg that kind of almost makes this Spielberg on crack feeling, which <laughs> I think permeates a lot of J.J. Abrams' work. And I like his work. Like I I think he's great and I love what he does. It is, it is like this um, concentrated hit of Spielberg. Like <laughs> that I'm not against at all. I actually really enjoy it. But to your yes, point, you it, put a seed of Spielberg in a child's mind and let it grow inside yeah. it. Then you go to Amblin <laughs> and he takes that seed out and makes uh-huh. it into a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Other are there any other Spielberg uh clones? I was wondering, does Chris Columbus does he fit in this? I think so. I think that makes sense because he started writing Goonies and Gremlins, which were both produced by Spielberg. And had like the precocious kids and, uh, you know, the fantasy. And then his movie, because he did the first few Harry Potter movies. And those definitely have that kind of... And what's funny is those are the only Harry Potter movies that I think a lot of people don't like. And those are the only ones that don't really have the director's stamp on it that like the later ones have. So like he too kind of gets lost in this sort of like, I'm going to just make a big movie that everyone likes. But like, what is the Chris Columbus style like what it like if you saw a frame from one of his movies would you say ah oh, that's that's the chris columbus touch i don't know but I, I it's like he definitely floats in there he's made kind of more i think broad comedies than a spielberg like mrs doubtfire doesn't feel like a spielberg thing but 
it, but it does feel does. it's yes and and mrs doubtfire feels spielberg adjacent like to your point it definitely does have some there is something to it you're right i and i don't know this this you're thing right about i don't even know how to phrase it there's the a whiff of it broken family like heartwarming stories about broken Bro- families yeah, coming back dads. together <laughs> a whiff of magic there's like a little bit of magic <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah. or magic light, you know. <laughs> I think Ron Howard can account. Oh, yeah. Ron Howard is but he's definitely... But he's interesting because he is more of a clone of the prestige Spielberg movies. Uh, but not a... Like, originally, Ron Howard kind of had his own little thing. But definitely Splash is starting to feel Spielberg-y. And then definitely his dramas, like when you get into, like, A Beautiful Mind and the stuff that, like, the real Oscar caliber Ron Howard feels like the type of thing that Spielberg passed on. Like Spielberg almost did Frost Nixon, but then instead Ron Howard did Frost. You know, it just seems like there's definitely... And then when Ron Howard tries to do like a fun movie like The Da Vinci Code, it doesn't really Don't you work. be slamming The Da Vinci Code. <laughs> I am so... The movie that I almost wanted to do instead was um, was uh, the second National to... Treasure, but people oh. love yeah. the movie so much that there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah. There was a whole period of time that I mourn we're not in anymore, which was the nerd heist films so it was like <laughs> da vinci code it was a uh, league of extraordinary gentlemen it was your national treasures it was your there was another one i was just thinking about where it was like nerdy stuff but we're wearing trench coats and running and we learn about <laughs> history but we're stealing something <laughs> like Ron Howard can do no wrong. Like, you know, John Turtletaub can do no wrong when it comes to those films. God freaking bless him. My dream is to be a National Treasure 3. Like, oh, yeah. these movies are amazing. Sorry, I didn't mean to take us completely off track, but it just got me passionate. No, no, it's okay. We've, we've, we, it's, it's good to have someone come in and give some love to Ron Howard. We, we've, I think he's doing okay. We're extremely positive, <laughs> but he, he gets singled out for a lot of, uh, Scorn. Although we did give a lot of love to the film Solo, so he did have an episode where we, even the directors we really don't like, we we try and find ways to find something (laughs) to love about them. Oh, I love Ron Howard. I I was lucky enough to meet him once, and he could not have been kinder. A very kind gentleman. So you won't hear me say a bad word about him. That's what they say about psychopaths. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you seem incredibly nice, Andra. So I don't that's know. Not, no, no, that's not true. That's not true. I met Clint Howard, uh, and he was incredibly f- nice. I've heard such good things about him. Him and I just talked about Neil Simon, which is not the conversation <laughs> I expected to have with Clint Howard. With the ice cream man, exactly. What, 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 you... what, what were you talking about about Neil Simon? Just we we're just talking about uh, Neil Simon and how he has this because it was great actually is I was hard on myself for not succeeding as a writer. And Clint Howard gave me this pep talk of like, oh, well, Neil Simon, he like, you know, he used to have this whole chest full of plays before he made it. And he would just write and put it, put it away. And he was just like trying to like pump me up to be like, don't give up, kid. Aww, like Neil Simon guy. did it. And that was just so nice of Clint Howard to do that. I didn't even know him. It was just like <laughs> literally in the, t- the 15 minutes that I interacted with him. I don't even know how it got to me being depressed, but it just, like, you just, <laughs> you just knew Quickly, it. Quickly, apparently. Face. Yeah. Um, did you guys see him on Joe Bob, on Last Driving with Joe Bob? Mm-mm. He, it was, I think, filmed during quarantine, and so he couldn't be in studio with them, and he uh, just did it over Skype, and they put, like, a TV set on a body, and they talked, and he just seemed so generous with his time and, like, had great stories and was playing along, so... Um, 
I'm a I'm a I'm a fan of the Howard family in general. Bryce Dallas, all of the Howards. Rants. <laughs> every yeah. every Howard. All of them. Howard Hughes. <laughs> Uh, you know Howard. what? <laughs> but I do love shoebox made shoebox shoes. Yeah, okay. So or uh, Kleenex box shoes. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, <laughs> I'll again, shuffle around. Find find something good to like in anyone. Uh, <laughs> um, so there's I, there's another director who I feel like is the sort of maybe the opposite of the Ron Howard, newer to the game. But I was when I was thinking about this of people who have the Spielberg thing, I feel like Mike Flanagan is mm. I feel like he's doing this I he's a director who I I'm not really into horror films I'm not like his mm-hmm. what he does are films that I don't wouldn't genuinely like but mm-hmm. I've liked everything of his that I saw I liked the shining yeah. sequel I really liked the haunting series that I thought that was so fantastic uh i'm have you I've seen watching, midnight mass yet i've been i watched midnight mass i listened to your episode where you're talking about how you haven't seen all of them so i'm not gonna <laughs> I, give have, any... I have now okay I have now so i'm good yeah but that that has everything in that movie is stuff that i don't like horror and but... christian and christianity <laughs> are two of my least favorite things to see in a film <laughs> i think there's probably a jealousy storyline in there and that would be the third one and i <laughs> I couldn't it's it I couldn't take my eyes off it and I feel like yeah. it, that's the Spielberg touch of being able to take you to a place that you wouldn't necessarily go a kind of movie you wouldn't go to and universalize it without cheapening it by by focusing on specifics it's also very a Stephen King thing like I'm not really into horror but I love Stephen King's books I've read probably more Stephen King than any other writer because I just and but I not for the horror, but because of how he deals with character and the point of view and his voice. And I feel like that's very true of Mike Flanagan. And Mm -hmm. I hadn't really thought of it in terms of Spielberg until we were preparing for this. But I feel like he might be one of the closest to having that combination of the common touch and that auteur thing that doesn't get in the way of the common touch. Yeah. Yeah. He's he and he feels unique enough that he doesn't feel like a Spielberg clone. Like Not he at all. feels like there I think he is an incredible filmmaker because he does what Spielberg does, he does what Stephen King does, which is everything is grounded in the relationships and the emotions of the characters. Yeah. Like the the movie he didn't do Crimson Peak, but um, the movie Crimson Peak, the 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 heroine says she's writing a novel and there's ghosts in it, and everyone says, "Oh, it's a ghost story," and she said, "No, it's a story with ghosts." And the movie Crimson Peak ends up being this story that has ghosts in it, but it's not about the ghosts; it's about the relationships. And I feel like that is what Mike Flanagan does so well, because. Every time I watch a Mike Flanagan project, I end up sobbing and I and I need to like so go cry in my shower for like an hour because <laughs> the scary stuff is outweighed by the the relationships and the human sadness and drama and there's so much soul to what he does and and I, I've not I think he's so magnetic. The work he does is unbelievable because of that. It's so grounded in real people and real relationships. 
I agree. And I think that's what makes this stuff scarier, too. Like that first season, or both seasons of The Haunting, uh, you just really feel for these people. So when one of them has something really bad happen to them, like die, yeah. it really, it really, it's not just scary, but then it's also, you get a mix of emotion and scares. Yeah. Which is hard to pull off. Usually it's one or the other. And, and that reminds me so much of Poltergeist. I think Poltergeist was the first horror movie I saw where it was really scary, but that family felt so real. Like that felt like my family or friends' families. Like that family unit is so well done in that movie with Joe Beth Williams and Craig T. Nelson and the kids. Yeah. And like they just do such a great job of like you're really with this family going through this terrifying ordeal. And that makes it all the more scarier when their daughter gets trapped in the other dimension, whether you want her to come back. It's not like some slasher where just a bunch of handsome people show up and then they all just die one by one, yeah. which you don't feel anything for. <laughs> but like in this movie, you really, you really like, and, and, and like the Flanagan stuff, like all like, yeah, Midnight Mass is so good. It's just like, he is the, he is my favorite person making horror things right now. Same. And same. I think I think he hides his Spielberg love in plain sight because Henry Thomas is in everything he does. Very, yeah. very true. That's yeah. so true. And yeah. he's amazing. He's, he's so good. Yes. He's yeah. so good in everything. But I yeah. and I think but I think part of that is our feeling that this is the kid from E.T. Yeah. That this he, okay, and every time we see him do something that isn't that, we're rooting for him. We're rooting for that actor. We're excited to see him play a different kind of character. He and I just feel like Flanagan knows that. Like he just put <laughs> it's as like it's like a bartender thing. That yeah. is like a a small element that is so strong that it informs the entire drink. And I feel like well, that's Henry Thomas. Yeah. Henry Thomas has become cultural shorthand for something. Like, there are certain actors who, by casting them, you add a very concentrated level of something to your film. If you cast Tom Hanks, everyone is going to come in with a feeling about Tom Hanks that then just automatically puts your film in this emotional place. And I think Henry Thomas does that as well. And, you know, seeing him as a kid... We were watching it, and at one point, Dennis looked over. He's like, I can't believe that's Elliot. Like, <laughs> it's Elliot. Now he's a grown man. <laughs> Feeling that affection we have for him, and then knowing the struggles he ha he's had in his real life, and then seeing, and he already kind of has a hangdog look anyway, so he plays a lot of those characters. Yeah. There's just so much emotion wrapped up in that immediately. So one second of Henry Thomas on the screen, and the audience is exactly where Mike Flanagan wants them. He's incredibly smart with the casting choices he makes. And now because Henry Thomas is part of his, I don't players. know, his, his players. <laughs> now it's the thing where we're going to Mike Flanagan knowing that part of the fun is going to be what's Henry Thomas going to be in this one. Yep. <laughs> yep. And that Luke. is, that's all, that's a, like that's like having a note on your keyboard that is like Spielberg, bing, Spielberg, <laughs> bing. <laughs> His casting of him as the Jack Nicholson character in Doctor Sleep is oh, brilliant. Yeah, because you're Risky. just like, how? Because you're like, how are they going to pull this off? Like, you can't. Who's? Are they going to have Christian Slater? How's this going to work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then having it be him is like totally. At first, you're like, I didn't know who it was him right away. I was like, who is this actor? Me like, either. it's clearly not Jack Nicholson, but this guy's good. And then it took me like a good two minutes to be like, oh shit, that's. 
that's where he put Henry Thomas. Like, that's amazing. And that that's was brilliant. a swing. <laughs> that was a big swing because I know a lot of people didn't like it, but I loved it. I saw him when he was in profile. I thought they had cast a Jack Nicholson lookalike. I thought they had just cast a guy in front of like Groman's Chinese theater, like playing <laughs> Jack. Cause he looked so much like him. And then they do a, a, a you know, a close up, and I'm like, that's Henry Thomas. That's amazing. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah. Is this still Groman's? Does this still belong to Groman, or is now is it like Tide Pod Chinese Theater? It's, I don't live in LA. it's funny because on this podcast we've had I, I, this we've had a rotating uh, pronunciation. Someone called it Groman's recently. You called it Groman's. <laughs> I've always called it Groman's. Uh, I don't know, man. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, I, Mike Mike Flanagan is is on my dream list of directors to work with one day, and I think I've already frightened him away, but he's on my list. I'm I'm a big fan. <laughs> no, no, no. I I hear he's he he never misses an episode of an acquired taste podcast. <laughs> he, he's a he's a P one. He's a taste bud. Yes, he's a full on taste bud. He loves you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually I I I met Henry Thomas at a horror convention in, I think it was Canada. Uh, right before COVID hit, and I was I, I gave him I complimented him on the haunting, and he he was he was like genuinely like oh you really like that I was like doesn't everybody he's like it's brilliant yeah so <clears throat> yeah he's a it's he's that... a very down to earth guy in person as well he's he really seems like it and that's a dumb thing to say because he could just be a brilliant actor and like a giant jerk but he there's a quality to him that seems very likable he also might have just been intimidated because robert england and i had just had this long political argument that got really loud in the bar (laughs) so that's like the least interesting nightmare on elm street movie I'm going to show up in your dreams and have a long political argument with you. I'm in the back of your minivan being real scary about politics. <laughs> well, I think I think we've given this movie Jurassic Park 3, I think a, a lot of love and I like I like that we got into these little uh, tributaries, conversations about Spielbergism. Just curious, do you have any uh, we haven't really talked Spielberg and we won't go fully down that rabbit hole, but do you feel like there's any, do you have any uh, Spielberg films you feel like the world is wrong about this, this month on the podcast, we're going to be doing the terminal and ready Mm -hmm. player one two Mm -hmm. two malign Spielberg films that we'll be championing. You know what? I I've not seen ready player one. I read the book, but that, you know, whatever. Um, I think the most recent Spielberg film I saw was The Post. And I'll say this, like it won a, it it was nominated and I think it won a bunch of awards and rightly so. I think a lot of people didn't like The Post. I heard a lot of negative stuff about it because they felt like it was Steven Spielberg kind of going on Spielberg autopilot and like casting brilliant actors and making a film really quickly. And the film is amazing and it's so unbelievably good. And I think that that is where Steven Spielberg showed his craft. You know, there's there's being an artist and having your artistic flares and designing a pot. You know, like if you're if you're a potter, you can design a pot and it's amazing, but your craft is practicing that same pot a million times until you become an expert at making that shaped pot, right? And Steven Spielberg has 
amazing vision and and unbelievable ideas, but he's also so good at the hard and fast craftsmanship of filmmaking that he knows exactly how to do it, exactly what shots he wants, exactly what actors to cast. He knows who's going to get it done. He can do it quickly and he's going to make a brilliant piece of work. And I think that the post showed to me just like that was that that's like, I don't know. It was like him slamming something down on the table and being like, see, I'm amazing. Like everyone already knew he was amazing, but this absolutely proved it. He made this brilliant film quickly and I, I loved it. I loved him for it. Okay, cool. Well, we're just, just curious. There's so many to choose from with Spielberg. Most of his, he's like the most popular and the most hated filmmaker on the planet. It seems like sometimes. So the guy can't win for he, winning. I think he has like a cross stitched framed something on his wall that says they hate us because they ain't us because that's basically everyone who doesn't like steven spielberg it's like you he's amazing like of course you hate him because he's so good there's nothing else to do you're either jealous or you're in awe <laughs> or both uh or, or both yeah it's like people that like the bad mouth the beatles and i'm just like get out of here yeah, i know it's just like like just get out of get out. Like this isn't even a conversation. Like, okay, yeah. I get I get it. Fine. Leave. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool to like, not like something that's awesome. Okay. Or that's that popular that's that loved for so long that's like yeah. it is that good. Just like you're just jealous because you can never be the Beatles and no one ever <laughs> will be. Yeah. And you know, if you say that to someone, they do tend to start crying. So it's best to like not Yeah. From personal usually- experience. Why not instead of just saying you hate the Beatles, just say I love the Who or I love the Kinks? Like just just you just play around it. Yep. But you don't don't attack the Beatles. Yep. Spin it, turn it into a positive. Build yeah. it up. What do you like? Exactly. Yeah. You're you're catching the vibe here. I mean, you came yeah. with the vibe. You got the positive vibe. Dude, it's the Jurassic extremely Park positive. Extremely. It's, it's, <laughs> love it. Yeah, love this movie. We're not into we're not into just the positive vibe. That's you got to be you got to be willing to be extreme about your positivity yeah like really yeah. go no, to the I'm... things that you don't like and be like what can i be positive about about joe johnston well he's <laughs> part of a community of filmmakers who all have been touched by this genius of steven spielberg <laughs> radio eight ball Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. Hey y'all, it's Amy from the Pink Among Men podcast. I know, you are really, really busy with your sourdough starter and your fourth rewatch of The Office. So it's totally cool if you don't have time for an informative, perspective-bending podcast right now. But if you do have a few minutes to spare in your jam-packed schedule, I want to offer Pink Among Men for your consideration. 
Pink Among Men is a weekly conversation on different perspectives, gender, and marginalization in the creative community. We chat with actors from shows you watch, directors who make movies that you want to watch, and comedians from stand-up shows that you'll probably never watch, but you should. Every Wednesday, they sit down to talk about the tragedy and the triumph that comes with not being a white dude in arts and entertainment. You probably don't have time for it, but maybe subscribe so you can listen when you're a little less busy. Get Pink Among Men on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're a proud member of the Paper House Network. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Okay, well, let's... Let's talk a little bit, uh, just tell people where people could find you. Sure. Bethany. You can find me on Instagram. I'm Ms. Bethany Watson, M.S. Bethany Watson. I'm mostly on Instagram. Um, Twitter, I'm Radio Bethany, my holdover from Radio Days. And uh, BethanyWatson.com. And my podcast is An Acquired Taste Podcast. Very cool. And I highly recommend it. It's uh, you. I, I've... I, I, I've listened to it before, but I listened to a bunch just to sure. to get in the mode for today. You and your co-host, you're so professional. It's embarrassing to uh, me and Brian. <laughs> in what way? Well, I was I... thinking the same thing when I listened to it. I was like, well, we're just such bums throwing together some shoddy thing. You guys, Not like, at do, all. You, do you? Here's a question. Maybe you don't want to give this away. Do you guys read everything you say? What do you mean? It's just like, so it well composed. Like everything that you say, there's like, because when we do our thing, it's a lot of, uh, uh it, like, it sounds like too oh. to having a phone conversation. Whereas you guys, like, do you, do you rehearse? No, like, no, no. Everything we are... you say, it's so like in your back and You forth, never talk so over tight. each other. As like, like just... I'm trying to talk over you now. We you never highly... do that. <laughs> <laughs> we are highly edited. We are a highly edited podcast. Doesn't um, show. It, we used to do, thank you, we used to do fewer edits, but but when COVID happened, we could no longer record together, and a Skype leg is a bitch. Um, and so it's a lot of, like, recording on separate tracks, taking the person out who's talking over the person, moving things around, making sure all the jokes <laughs> land. Like That makes me feel it's better. It's a lot of edits. So um, yeah. And shout out to my partner, Dennis, who's a brilliant filmmaker, and he's also helping us out right now while our editor is uh, having a baby. He's editing the pod right now, so... Those brilliant edits are Dennis Callow. Brian and I have both been guests on his uh, former podcast. Yeah, the Carrie Allen Picture Show, Show, which is still up. So episodes are still out. So your episodes should still be listened to because you guys are awesome. You guys are so awesome. I'm so grateful you had me. Well, thank Thank you. you. Uh, So let's let let the listeners know we uh, you can find us. The world is wrong podcast at our website www.theworldiswrongpodcast you can find us on instagram at world the world is wrong podcast and on twitter at world is wrong pod brian's other podcast is the director's wall where he and his co-host aj gonzalez discuss the films of one film director they started off with m night Shyamalan. also could be considered spielberg like next generation Spielberg possibly Mm -hmm. and Francis Ford Coppola who you're working with now who you could consider as pre Spielberg blockbuster 
uh, auteur guy. And you can also find my other podcast, The Radio 8-Ball Show, which you were a guest on, Bethany, when that's yeah. how I met you when you were on the Anya Marina episode. And that's the show yes. where we answer questions by picking songs at random and interpreting them like musical tarot cards. You can find that at uh, any place you get your podcasts or at Radio8Ball.com, all one word with the number eight in it. And coming up next week, we are going to be talking about what, Brian? The Terminal? That's the one. Good guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We're going to be talking, talking about The Terminal with two. Uh, we're continue continue our, our, our month of Spielberging. And uh, I'm really looking forward to it. We'll, we'll actually, that'll be our next uh, uh, three-person episode. I'm trying so hard not to say threesome. I'm just going to say it. Our next threesome <laughs> will be with your co-host, Thrupple. AJ Gonzalez. And we'll be discussing the terminal like this. It's a lot, I, I think this is pretty fun, Brian. You like? It's pretty cool to have someone here with us, right? I know. It doesn't feel as lonely. Yeah. Or pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> When it's just the two of us, it feels like that movie, The Lighthouse. <laughs> but it's good to have a third person to, like, you know, pull us from our insanity. I would 10 out of 10 listen to a podcast produced by Robert Eggers or directed by Robert Eggers. <laughs> I, I, I think that makes you the bird, Bethany. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Sorry. I'm tearing out your guts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, this has been a lot of fun, and whether whether you're Steven Spielberg or you're Joe Johnston, wherever you are, people, just remember this, that uh, the world is wrong, and it's probably wrong about you. I read both of your books. I like the first one more, before you're on the island. You liked dinosaurs back then. Well, back then, they hadn't tried to eat me yet. When InGen cleared out, they left a lot of stuff behind. Any weapons? No. And I just used the last of the gas grenades. And I appreciate that. <coughs> Be careful with that. T-Rex. Scares some of the smaller ones away, but it attracts one really big one with a fin. This is T-Rex P? How'd you get it? You don't want to know. Sir? Sure. Eric, I have to tell you, I'm astonished that you've lasted eight weeks on this island. Is that all it's been? Well, you're alive, and that's the important thing. And thanks to you, that's one thing that we have in common. Did you read Malcolm's book? Yeah. So. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it was kind of preachy and, and too much chaos. Everything's chaos. It seemed like the guy was kind of high on himself. Well, that's two things that we have in common. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola, 
Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.